Hello, and welcome to this episode of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Murray Baker Eddy Library in Boston. My name is Krista Side-Graham. I'm the producer of the Seekers and Scholars podcast, and I'm putting on the host hat for this episode. Our regular host, Jonathan Eater, is stepping into the guest role. How are you doing, Jonathan? Delighted to be the guest and, and have you as the host. Jonathan is Manager of Programs and Scholarly Engagement here at the library, and the reason we're bringing him on as a guest today is to discuss an article that he recently wrote for the library's website called The Christian Science Monitor and Boston's Settlement Houses. And we're also joined in the studio by Dr. Laura Prieto, who for many years served as the Professor of History and of Women's and Gender Studies at Simmons University right here in Boston. And Laura, you oversaw a major project with students at Simmons in which you developed an online exhibit about a Boston settlement house. The exhibit is called Learned from Our Neighbors, Stories from the Elizabeth Peabody House. So we're so happy to have you with us to help us understand the story of Boston settlement houses and how that relates to the many stories that the Christian Science Monitor wrote about them. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really enjoyed Jonathan's article. That is the impetus for this episode. I've enjoyed many episodes of your podcast in the past as well. So, so glad. Thanks for being a listener, Yeah, as well as now a guest. Jonathan, your article taught me that the Monitor, which was founded right in the middle of the Progressive Era in the year 1908, gave quite a bit of attention to the social reform movements of this era, And that included the, at the time, developing profession of social work, and in particular, settlement houses as a form of social service outreach. And it gave special attention to the social reform activity and settlement houses in Boston, in their home city. So readers of The Monitor today know it more as an internationally focused, globally focused newspaper. I have to confess I didn't really know about settlement houses before preparing for this episode. I also didn't know how they related to the progressive era, and that's a period that spans approximately from 1897 to 1920. Laura, what was a settlement house? How did it function? Why did they develop in the first place? I like to describe the settlement as a really quintessential project of the progressive era and of the progressives. So this idea of a settlement house seems to have come from England. The first one was Toynbee Hall, founded in uh, 1884, I believe. The idea of a physical building within an impoverished or needy community that would serve that community. So it was a poor neighborhood, and the workers, often called residents, would live there in this building. They were the ones doing the settling, I suppose, in the Mm. settlement house. It was a real functional house and kind of a household, but not of a biological family. Progressive reform-minded people, usually young people, many of them women, who went into these neighborhoods living among the people that they were hoping to serve and work with. And they were organizing classes and activities and services that evolved over time as they learned what their neighbors needed. Jonathan, you write in your article, in 1912 and 1913 alone, the paper printed well over 50 articles on settlement houses. That's close to an article every two weeks. Frankly, it was astonishing to me to see how much print the Monitor was devoting to settlement houses. It had a regular series that it featured called Among the Settlements, just over and over again, looking at what was happening with the settlement houses. It had a regular series on social workers or social work in Boston. 
But every one of those articles that I saw on social work in Boston really was about activities in the settlement houses. What story is told in this article? I think there are a variety of story lines in it. One is the, really the story of what it was to be a Bostonian in the early part of the 20th century. By some accounts, two-thirds of the city at this point were either recent arrivals or children of foreign-born immigrants to, to Boston. So to be a Bostonian when the Christian Science Monitor is born in the city, it most likely means you're from someplace else or you're identifying with someplace else. Or if you're not, you're really interested in and engaging with people from these other parts of the world, most notably Europe. And in this period, the new immigrants are really coming from often non-English speaking areas. They're coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. And so how does the Monitor's initiation as a newspaper in Boston coincide and engage with what is happening in its home city? And looking specifically at settlement houses was really a way of narrowing that focus because settlement houses were all about integrating new arrivals into American culture. So, Jonathan, what was it that drew you to this topic? Krista, there were quite a few reasons, actually. Mm -hmm. um, one is that I'm a Bostonian. I wasn't born here, but I grew up here, so I've always had a strong feeling for the city and its history. You know, in my family, there were two newspapers, faithfully the Boston Globe and faithfully the Christian Science Monitor. But we got the Globe really for Boston News and the Monitor for everything else. It did give that wonderful global perspective. So I was kind of raised on these two <laughs> newspapers mm -hmm. um, in terms of understanding the world. So it was fascinating for me in this piece to go back to a period in Monitor history when it was deeply engaged with the events of the city. The other reason why I found it meaningful had to do with this whole question of the relationship of Christian science and social service. There has been this critique within certain circles that the theology of Christian science can lead to disengagement from the world because at the basis of Eddie's thought is that there is an omnipotent and all-good God. And so her theology and her experience was one that led her to a conviction that God's creation was all good. Now, this didn't mean that she wasn't aware of the human problems because uh, Christian science was all about addressing them and healing them as a very active activity, not one that's passive and involving retreat. But that has not stopped this kind of critique of Christian science, mm -hmm. particularly around the question of social service, social engagement. And an example of it was something that I came across when I was doing some work on a 19th century movement into the 20th century called Muscular Christianity. And this was in a book by Professor Clifford Putney. And I'll quote from it because I think it really sort of synthesizes this critique of Christian science as being incompatible with or in tension with the activities and the motives of social service. So it reads, quote, Finally, and most persuasively, those opposed to Eddie urge potential Christian scientists not to forget social service. And then it quotes a congregational minister, Charles Brown. And this is what Brown has to say, quote, If there is no such thing as poverty or sickness, then of course we are not called upon to give any of our money to maintain homes, 
hospitals or relief societies. But it is untrue, Brown continues. It is a false claim, which is leading scores of confused and undiscriminating people to become complacent, self-centered, self-satisfied, morally indifferent to the stern needs about them. Sin is a fact. Crime is a fact. Poverty is a fact, a hard, bitter, unyielding fact. Hmm. So it was fascinating for me to delve into this subject and see how much attention <laughs> the monitor is giving to social service. It's um, kind of rebutting in its own way this claim that exists is represented by these comments from Minister Charles Brown. The monitor, it's not a religious newspaper, it's a secular newspaper, but it is informed by Eddie's thought. So, Laura, I'm just so curious, in that critique, we hear called out these concepts of sin and poverty and crime. What the minister is saying are these hard facts of existence. How did um, the Settlement House movement view those issues? One of the many guiding principles behind it was this emerging idea in the late 1800s that social problems like poverty were the result of social causes and environmental causes, that they weren't the result of individual people's innate characteristics or their moral failings, mm. um, that social problems came from society and social structures and that therefore they could be solved. Mm. by understanding those causes in the mundane world. It was a very different model of philanthropy from earlier in the 19th century when it was really visiting and dispensing with charity and then, you know, maybe leaving. So when I teach about this, I often rely on the Louisa May Alcott novel, Little Women, mm. um, because it's still familiar to, <laughs> to people. I describe what the March family generously does with their Christmas dinner at the beginning of that novel, and mm. they bring it to the Hummels, who are their poor German neighbors. But then they go back home. So even as an ideal kind of manifestation of that care for others in the community and that generosity, it was limited in that the interactions are one way and very, very limited. Whereas in settlement houses, it was, again, about living together. And the residents, as they often call themselves, the settlement workers, benefited, they felt, also from these interactions. It wasn't just charity. It was that they were gaining a sense of usefulness and purpose, that they were able to live their values. And they saw that as a benefit that they were deriving from the work that they were doing in these communities so that serving others had a benefit to themselves and that they could contribute to the social good. Very cool. Jonathan, have you found anything in Eddie's writings where she speaks directly to philanthropy? Well, one thing I've always appreciated from Mary Baker Eddy's writings is a tribute that she gave. It was actually published in the New York Press, in the New York Mail and Express, but it, it's also part of miscellany and, and prose works on Christian science by Eddie. And it's this tribute to the de Hirsch's, Baron and Baroness de Hirsch, who were major big-time philanthropists. Their philanthropy was mostly directed at immigrants, primarily Jewish immigrants, but not exclusively Jewish immigrants, coming from Eastern Europe to the United States. And they were very much involved in the settlement movement. Mm -hmm. Baron de Hirsch with settlement organizations in rural parts of the United States. But there was also the Clara de Hirsch Home for Working Girls in New York City, and that's Baroness mm. de Hirsch. So Eddie saw in the activities of the de Hirsch's 
qualities that really represented to her the action of divine love. In fact, she says so. She writes about them. They were unquestionably used in a remarkable degree as instruments of divine love. Mm-hmm. And then she goes on to specifically address the issue of philanthropy. She writes, quote, philanthropy is loving, ameliorative, revolutionary. It wakens lofty desires, new possibilities, achievements, and energies. I think that's all very much part of the Settlement House movement. You, you see those qualities uh, represented in those efforts. She goes on and says, it touches thought, spiritual issues, systemizes action, and ensures success. And she writes, love unfolds marvelous good and uncovers hidden evil. The philanthropist or reformer gives little thought to self-defense. His life's incentive and sacrifice need no apology. The good done and the good to do are his ever-present reward. Social service was very much on the minds of the editors and directors of the Christian Science Monitor. They obviously cared about it. So, Laura, is the Monitor portrayal of what's going on with social work and settlement houses, at least as I understood it in the article, is it giving a sort of fair picture? I found what I've read from the Christian Science Monitor's coverage to be very accurate and Mm -hmm. fair. It's incomplete, but I think anyone's coverage would have been incomplete. The settlement movement was so incredibly broad and diverse. I mean, by the 19-teens, there were hundreds of these sorts of institutions across the country, and they were very experimental. Mm. So I think it would be difficult to capture every facet, even within the seat of Boston, where there were several major settlement houses. And just to clarify, when I was first learning about what settlement houses were, I assumed they were places where the immigrant communities themselves lived, but Mm. it's not that, right? The only people living there were the people working in the house, but it was really functioning more as a community center where people from the neighborhood would come during the day, participate in activities, classes, that kind of thing, and then go home, but they were near their home. Typically so, and the settlements that continue to this day, the Elizabeth Peabody House, which uh, maybe we'll talk about a little more later on, continues to this day. It moved out to Somerville, but it continues to provide social services. The Henry Street Settlement in New York City continues to this day. But as I said, they were quite versatile and responsive to their communities. You know, one of the concerns they had was about how young working women might not have a safe place to live if they weren't living with their families. They were concerned about the lack of childcare options for women who had children to be able to obtain jobs and where they would leave their children. And so sometimes there were opportunities for rooming in some settlement houses, communal kitchens, since a lot of tenement apartments did not have their own kitchens or places uh, where you could cook for yourself. And certainly not safely, given the ventilation issues with a lot of these uh, tenement buildings. But it was mostly the residents were the settlement workers. Mm -hmm. As I said, mostly younger people, university educated, a lot of them, again, women. And it was the center for a lot of social science study as well, that the residents weren't just sleeping there and observing. They were conducting investigations, for Mm -hmm. example, of the quality of water and trash collection in the neighborhood and sort of all the component parts that might contribute to the health and welfare of the people who were living there. Mm. It's a very immersive type of support, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Yes. So teaching is part of it, but also what became the profession of social work, as you were starting to talk about earlier, Jonathan, that they were 
really pioneering what became a profession. It started as more volunteer work, but became within this generation a profession. Mm. So, Jonathan, in your research, was there a particular article that stood out to you? What really stood out to me was just the density, depth of coverage on settlement houses. So that was the big impression. There was so much uh, and so much rich detail that you could find out about them through the monitor coverage. I really appreciated a suggestion from you, which was to uh, look for an editorial. Mm. One was from March 21st, 1912, and it was uh, titled Transmission of Ideals. The editors of the Christian Science Monitor in this particular editorial were commenting about the 20-year report on the South End House. Uh, It was founded in 1892. So you get the impression from the editorial they've read this report, presumably fairly extensive. They begin the editorial with this, quote, The genealogy of an institution like the social settlement is as worth noting and recording as the ancestry of a serviceable and humane leader of men. The report of 20 years of life and growth by the South End House, Boston, and its residents just issued begins with an interesting tracing of the transmission of the social impulse from Maurice to Ruskin, thence to Edward Dennison, who led Arnold Toynbee to establish the pioneer settlement in London, where Stanton Coit, Jane Adams, and Robert A. Woods got the insight and training that fitted them to initiate settlement work in New York, Chicago, and Boston. Good editors, I think. I think they kind of summarize a long history fairly quickly. But it also indicates, you know, that Boston is at the forefront of this movement along with New York and Chicago. And then later in the editorial, it really endorses what the achievements of the settlement movement have been. And it reads, quote, The secret of the success accomplished wherever the settlement idea is tested for a sufficiently long period is in restoration of the human contact that in villages and towns makes it possible for all sorts and conditions of men to know about each other. 20 years of residence in a district, all the time studying it with a view to its uplift, gives a man knowledge that educators, priests and preachers, lawmakers and police who come and go, value. It really sort of underscored why there's all this reporting. Another that just sort of springs to mind in the moment is one that was titled Picnics, Parks, and Schools on Boston's Roofs. And it really sort of brought you into what the experience of living in these downtown Boston neighborhoods was like in the North End, West End, South End, particularly in the summertime, where in these congested, crowded situations, people were looking for a way to make life tolerable. And they um, found their roofs to be a solution, at least in part. So they created classrooms up there, wonderful gardens, and the monitor sort of really brings you into uh, to that world. It also talks about an institution in Boston that is well-known. It's really become a fixture in the city. It's, it's known internationally, I think, by now, called the North Bennett Street School. Yes. The boys there contributed to the neighborhood from that settlement organization by helping to build through the woodworking there were learning uh, these rooftop spaces. The editorial and the articles really gave me a sense of kind of shouting out the hands-on practical value of the settlement movement for uplifting people's lives. Yes. The endeavors of settlements were ultimately really practical mm-hmm. in some way. It's also voluntary. The participation of the neighbors, right, is not under any kind of compulsion. So there have to be appealing reasons for them to be part of these classes and programs. You know, it has to serve their needs or they won't go. I should add that 
spiritual values, especially Christian values, were also quite central to a lot of the motivations of settlement workers, what was called the social gospel movement Mm -hmm. at the time. Living the gospel and living that life of service did have a lot of religious dimensions for many settlement workers, practicing charity and mercy and regarding people in these neighborhoods as their brothers and sisters. Do you have a sense that most of the people working at the settlement houses were coming at it with some kind of faith background that was driving them to do this work? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's hard to pin down. There are no statistics on it. But, I mean, I would say that if we're talking about the United States in 1910, the vast majority of people belonged to a church mm-hmm. of some kind. And the majority were Protestant. That was changing with the new immigrants. But religion was such an organic part of people's worldview mm-hmm. um, for that whole generation that I think it's really hard to separate out. Settlements were, by and large, secular institutions. I mean, at most, I'd say they were ecumenical. They weren't associated with a particular denomination or church. Mm -hmm. I don't know of them having church services of any kind at settlements. And part of that was just the religious diversity of the neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As Jonathan said earlier and writes about in the article, immigration in this period was largely coming from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, which also meant it was much more strongly Catholic and Jewish in terms of demographics. And so there was that in terms of like particular religious faith, denominational faith, that difference between the settlement workers and the neighbors. Yeah, Laura, sort of on that theme of neighborliness or the neighborhood, the exhibit that you supervised and helped bring to such wonderful fruition, learned from our neighbors, stories from the Elizabeth Peabody house, you know, really gets one into that relationship between these educators, these residents in the settlement houses, and then the people that are really taking very vital advantage of these opportunities. You know, I found the monitor coverage of settlement houses was as trained on (laughs) the Elizabeth Peabody house as much as any other. Uh, And, you know, I, I think it's because that house was so interesting. That, that's kind of the, the impression I get, because you do have a, a sort of strong Yiddish or Jewish presence within it. You do seem to get a lot of attention on educational programming for young women in it. Not to say that that isn't going on at other places, but such a rich heritage at the Elizabeth Peabody House. They staged Yiddish plays, right, as you talk about in your article. They were also annually performing Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. (laughs) And so they were making a statement there, I think, that Gilbert and Sullivan is for everyone, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're, You're welcome to perform this too. Among the other arts, they had several orchestras based at the Elizabeth Peabody House. They had a classical orchestra, they had a jazz orchestra, and they also had folk music orchestras. And so all of that was happening at the same time, I think, as as you're describing. It was a really fertile, kind of pluralist, multi-ethnic space. Another thing I'm, I'm sort of curious about was the naming of the Elizabeth Peabody House and the naming of some of the other houses. Some were named after men like the Robert Gould Shaw, I think, um, or the Lincoln House. Yes. But you have the Francis Willard House, you have the Harriet Tubman House, you have the Elizabeth Peabody House. I find that so fascinating because for these new arrivals to go to these settlement houses that are really celebrating 
extraordinary women leaders in American history, whether it was Peabody as the founder of the American Kindergarten or Willard uh, leading the temperance movement, or of course, Harriet Tubman and her extraordinary efforts in the underground railroad. Yes, and settlements are a really, really important site to understand women's history in this period. And I'd say that's true on, again, both sides, the side of the residents or settlement workers and also the neighbors. Not only were women quite important, even dominant sometimes among the workers. I mean, Denison House, for example, was, was in Boston, was run by women. Also, women were very important founders of some of the iconic settlements of this era. So uh, Hull House in Chicago, mm-hmm. right, founded by Jane Addams, who had traveled to England and visited Toynbee Hall and was inspired to bring that model over to the United States, but kind of made it her own. Mm -hmm. And even that idea of the house that we've talked about and the idea of a home as like a nurturing place, bringing maternal values, those gender ideals were also a a big part of the, the settlement movement. Often the outreach that settlements did was to mothers and was to single working women or young Mm -hmm. single women, as well as to children in these neighborhoods. So that was a piece of it sort of on the the neighbor side. Oh, and also, I I mean, I should mention Elizabeth Peabody House also stands out because they had a science club for girls as well as for boys um, in the early 20th century. and, And that was a little unusual. But for the settlement workers themselves, like often, again, these these college women or college graduates, there was such a pull to settlement work because there were very few professions that were open to women in this generation. They wanted to apply what they had learned to, again, Mm -hmm. better the world. And for many thousands of these women, settlement seemed like the ideal place to apply what they'd learned and to make a difference, to make a better world. So there's a really strong connection between the settlement movement and women's history and the progressive era. Sometimes I have to remind my students that men were also part <laughs> yeah. of the settlement movement because I, I tend to emphasize that, that piece of it in our classes since it was so unusual. Laura, I spent some time on the exhibit online, which was fabulous, by the way. Thank you. I learned so much from it. Very proud of the students (laughs) and the work they did, especially considering it was 2019, 2020, when they were doing the research and then curating the exhibit. The exhibit states, The intent behind Settlement House programming cannot be defined as entirely beneficial or detrimental to immigrant populations. Some people think of them as a model that was based around forced assimilation. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, was that accurate? And then, Jonathan, I'm interested to know, how did the monitor's approach to reporting contrast? You know, what was their monitor's tone? This is a longstanding debate. It's an honest debate, and long live the debate, um, (laughs) right, over whether settlement houses were a tool of social control Mm. and social reform. Some historians have seen all of the progressives' initiatives in that light. You have to grant that settlements were assuming that all of those who came through the doors would want to assimilate. And they were offering definitely classes and programs that would help to do that. It's a melting pot model. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not exclusive. 
they weren't viewing foreigners as as threats, as racial dangers, the way a lot of native-born Americans were at that time. So on the, like, spectrum of attitudes, if you look at it historically, they're not xenophobic to that extreme. But there is a very healthy debate about how much pressure there was to Americanize and assimilate. I would say there was an assumption that that is what was best for everyone that underwrote settlement houses. But I also see in the settlements all of these opportunities for kind of pluralism to flourish. I've already mentioned like the folk music orchestra at Elizabeth Peabody House. So I, I think that there were those opportunities and it wasn't necessarily wanting people to completely erase their ethnic identity, but that there was an assumption that they would want to become American and that they would be transformed and embrace the English language and citizenship. Well, Chris, it's so interesting you asked that question because the initial impression I got, as I kind of have indicated, I think, was just um, how the monitor was conveying this wonderful sort of multicultural atmosphere that was going on with the settlement movement in Boston. But after a closer reading, I realized there were a lot of clues of the monitor being interested in the assimilation aspect of the settlement house movement. Mm. You find it in the um, editorial that I referenced earlier, Transmission of Ideals. It concludes this way. It reads, Mr. Wood, and, and by this they mean Robert A. Woods and his associates, are factors in city affairs to whom wise mayors and state legislators listen. They guard the interests of a section of the city centrally located, still mainly American and British in its population, and strategically situated for upholding worthy urban ideals and customs. So I think the spirit of the actual on-the-ground settlement houses made room for that kind of mutual engagement. But I think for the monitor, you, you do see the assimilation impulse as being important to what the settlement houses are uh, providing. Laura, if one wants to kind of understand that progressive era history around settlement houses, what does the monitor in this archive, as, as we've started to sign some light on it, offer that social history? Mm, I think that coverage is very important to look at. Newspaper coverage in general, the monitor's coverage in particular, especially since it, it shows their attention to Boston. Mm -hmm. um, but settlements tended to be very good at keeping records mm. of themselves. The excerpt that you read refers to a report, right? So right. they typically yeah. uh, collected and issued annual reports. They generated studies and published those. Um, there are memoirs of some settlement workers and lots of other more kind of casual papers. So you'll find them in the archives. But that's their own view, right? Mm -hmm. so that's the insider view. And what we get from the Christian Science Monitor's really consistent coverage over many years is a more outside view, mm -hmm. right? Which tells us better what the impact was, what the perception was within the city of were these really effective places, was what they were doing really important and notable. And I think that's a great value. Something else I was so happy to happen upon in the Monitor's coverage is about settlement house institution in Boston called the Saturday Evening Girls of the Library Club House. This actually originally sort of started at the North Bennett Street School in Boston. 
And it was really very much about giving aspiring, intellectually curious young women in the North End the opportunity to kind of satisfy that curiosity. In this case, what we learned from the Monitor article is this, quote, Last Saturday evening, John D. Whitman of the Boston American spoke to the Saturday evening girls on the making of a newspaper. This is to be followed by a visit on November 16th to the Christian Science Publishing Society, where the girls will inspect the workings of the various departments of the Christian Science Monitor. So the Monitor reported on the Settlement House movement, and it also participated in it. I love that discovery. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you both. Thank you, Laura, Dr. Prieto, for your time, for coming in and being in conversation with us. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And Jonathan, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for your questions, and thanks so much, Laura. I learned a lot. And yeah, another plug for your and your team's wonderful exhibit, Learned from Our Neighbors, really gets you into that settlement house experience and certainly made us so happy to have you as a guest. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Seekers and Scholars. Keep an eye out for a special bonus feature coming out about this episode. We'll be talking with Mark Sappenfield, editor of the Christian Science Monitor, to hear his response to our conversation about the Monitor and Settlement Houses. And next month, we'll be looking forward to a conversation about Christian science history through the lens of public history, including the question, what is public history, and how does it relate to the library's archives, and to you, our listeners. I'm Krista Seid-Graham, and thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.